Welcome, welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm on staff here at CCC, and I'm glad to spend a little time with you, whether you're here in the sanctuary with me now, whether you're over in East Hall, or you're watching online, I'm so glad you're spending some time with us. We're gonna be continuing our series in 1 John. We're calling it Letter of Love. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take it out and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's gonna be on the screen behind me. You can read along there. But as you're turning, I do wanna put something on your radar, and that is in a few weeks, on September 13th, our Sunday evening programming is going to be back for the fall. So what used to be on Wednesday night will now live on Sunday night. It'll involve programming for children and a variety of classes designed to help you take the next step in your relationship with Jesus and a variety of topics. So really wanna encourage you to check it out. Of course, we'll be making sure that all COVID protocols are followed. It's gonna be a safe place, gonna be great. I really don't want you to miss it. September 13th, you can go online now and sign up for whatever class might interest you or get your kids ready to go. Uh, But for now, let's turn our attention to just one verse, First John chapter five, verse three, and this is what it says. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the word of God. One, one verse, just one verse, two sentences. But I think what we're gonna find is it's a little bit like an iceberg. There's just two sentences floating on the water, but a mountain of truth for us to wrestle with underneath the waves. And and to do that this weekend, I have an outline I wanna give to you just to help us follow along and help us to navigate these two sentences in front of us. If you're a note taker, you can take these down. And if not, just gonna have them in your head to help us make sense as we plot our course. Three things, and they go like this. Number one, I wanna talk about how it has to be. Number two, how it can be. And number three, the one who proves it to me, okay? How it has to be, how it can be, and the one who proves it to me. Let's start with how it has to be. It probably didn't elude you that in these two sentences, one thing is clear. A relationship with God is going to involve authority, This is what the writer says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. In other words, another way of saying that is this is how God decides that we love him, whether or not we obey him. This is how God defines loving him, obeying him. This is how God receives love through our obedience. The writer is driving home this point that it is impossible to love God and not obey him. Obedience and love go hand in hand for God. I guess that makes sense because he's God. And so when he says something is right, by its very definition, it must be right. And when he says something is wrong, it has to be wrong. For him to be incorrect about what's right or what's wrong would be for him not to be God. Therefore, to love God is to say yes to what he says yes to and no to what he says no to. It is impossible to love God and not obey him. Another way of saying that would be 
our obedience level to God is related to how much we love him. Jesus will say something similar, by the way, in the Gospel of John, when he will say, if you love me, keep my commands. The Bible makes clear that God desires a relationship with us, but it is a relationship of authority. Now, that's simple enough, but it's worth repeating. And the reason why is because in our culture, what we tend to do is create our own definition of what it means to love God. And most of us come up with a version of God that is really like a grandfather. You know, it's like when my dad visits my house, my kids could be running around, hitting each other, pouring things out on the carpet, tearing the house apart. And if I say, dad, why didn't you say something? He'd say, I'm a grandfather, that's not my job. Now, most of us think of a grandfather as just having a smile, maybe some pithy advice, and of course, a Werther's original in his pocket for us. And that is how we tend to think of God. He, he smiles at us, he loves us, but he wants nothing from us. And of course, that can be how you think about God, and that can be the God that you choose to have a relationship with. However, according to the Bible, that's not actually God, and that's not actually a relationship with him. Because for the God of the Bible, love and obedience, love and authority go hand in hand. By this, you know that you love God. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. But there's a second thing that the writer says that's even harder. He, he doubles down on the difficulty. He doesn't just say loving God means obeying him. That would be hard enough to wrestle with, but then he hits us with this. And his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, this is the love of God, that you obey him and you're happy about it that you welcome his authority into your life, that you're eager to hear what he says yes to and what he says no to. I mean, it's one thing for God to require my obedience. It's another thing for him to want me to smile about it. But that's what the writer says. This is how you know you love God. You obey him and it's easy to do so. Well, that's pretty challenging. But, but I want you to think about it a little bit differently. In other words, think about it this way. We know that as humans, when we relate to each other, one of the ways that you love someone is you discern or you figure out what kind of love they receive, right? Maybe you've read five love languages or similar ideas that you, you can't just love someone in a way that you decide is love. You need to learn how they receive love. That's really important because you might think you're loving them, but they may not think you're loving them because it's not the way they receive love. I'll give you an example from my family. I have six other people in my immediate family, one wife and five kids. And all six of them receive love the same way. They receive love by me spending time with them. Now, I am not wired that way. In fact, I've created a sixth love language, which is me time. Okay, the way you love me is you give me me time. You, you give me space. And what that means is that sometimes my house is a little bit like a zombie movie. Okay, I'm trying to hide from them. And they are all looking for me saying, please spend time with me, please spend time with me. And it always ends up with me in the bathroom. Because you would think the bathroom is the one place where you can get alone, not so. Especially if you don't lock the door. And sometimes I have to lock it and like put a chair in front of it. 
And even then they get on their stomachs at the, the, the base of the door saying, are you in there? And that's just my wife. Right? I mean, they, they, what they're saying to me is, how you show me that you love me is you spend time with me. Now, at my worst, that really bothers me. But at my best, what that means is that I take my wife on dates, that I get alone with each one of my five kids and find a way to say I love you enough to spend time with you. Because ultimately, I could look at them and I could say, you know what, I don't have to spend time with you to love you. There's too many of you. I provide a home for you. I provide food for you, clothes for you to wear. That's how you know that I love you. And that's true. Those things are connected to love. But if that's all I ever did, I would raise a group of kids and have a wife who would look back over their lives and say, I never really felt loved by my husband or by my father because he didn't bother to love me in the way I needed to be loved. Well, friends, if that's what we understand about each other, why wouldn't we extend that same idea to a personal God? And what we have here is God saying, this is how you love me. You allow me to be an authority in your life. This is how you love me. You keep my commandments. This is how you love me, that you don't just keep them, but you want to keep them. You welcome my authority into your life. This is how you show me that you love me. You are happy to obey me. So sure, we could form other ways of loving God, and many of them would be connected to love, but if we're unwilling to give God the love that he desires, can we really say that we're loving him at all? It has to be this way. To be in relationship with God is to be in a relationship of authority. To love God is to welcome that authority into every single area of our lives he wants to extend it into. Well, that leads me to my second point, which is to say, okay, if that's how it has to be, how can it be that way? Because let's be honest, the idea of inviting God's authority, welcoming God's authority into every area of our lives terrifies us. The last thing we want to do is open our lives before God and say, God, anything you want to say, any area, I mean, if you want to talk about my, my love life or my financial life or my career or my home or the community I live in or the way I raise my kids, anything you want to talk about, God, anything, I welcome your authority. That is terrifying. In fact, I've, I've been in ministry for 15 years and I have seen this alone drive so many people away from Christianity. I mean, I have seen people come and call themselves Christians and walk away. And without fail, when they walk away, they will cite reasons. They'll talk about questions they couldn't get answered or doubts they couldn't overcome. And, and, and I'm no, I know you know many people who have similar stories. And, and I don't mean in any way to belittle those questions or those doubts. You, you should ask questions and, and you should be honest about your doubts. But, but what I've found is as I meet these people for coffee or I spend time with them, that what it really comes down to is that there was an area or areas of their lives they simply did not want to welcome God's authority into their lives. 
And the more and more they began to see God's authority, not as something that was to be welcomed, but as an intrusion. The more and more they got scared about what God might do if they gave him control, the louder fears got, the louder doubts got, the louder questions got. So what really was driving them away was this idea that I, I don't welcome God's authority in my life. And by the way, you, you don't have to be so brazen and so bold. You don't have to walk away from the church and say you're not a Christian anymore to do this. You can show up every Sunday and sit in the pew and sing the songs and smile, but inside, no, you have no interest in letting God invade any area, let alone all areas of your life. Now, this is a struggle for us. So how can we ever get to a place where we welcome the authority of God in our lives? How could we ever get there? Well, I want you to consider that you already do this in a lot of areas of your life with a lot of people. You welcome the authority of other people in your life all the time. And when you do, it's always for the same two reasons. You realize you don't know and you know you need to find somebody who does. I'll give you an example from my own life. This past weekend, this, this weekend, we had a toilet that wasn't working at our house. The toilet take kept running, water kept going through. And, and, and my wife mentioned it to me and I said, I'll take a look. And she said, are you sure that's the best course of action? And the reason why is because last time we had a toilet that wasn't working, when I finished, there was not a dry towel in the house. And when I say finished, I don't mean when I fixed it. I mean when I finally stopped and said, we should call a plumber. And so my wife was saying, are you sure you, you want to take a crack at it? And I said, well, let me see what I can do. And if I reach a point where I can't figure it out, we'll call someone. She said, okay. But, but that's our rhythm, isn't it? When you have something in the house you can't fix, you realize I can't fix it, you call someone. When there's something going on in your body that you don't understand, you can't solve, you go to the doctor. When your finances are in disarray and you can't get it in order, you call a financial counselor. When you can't get in shape, you go see a personal trainer. We all the time understand this rhythm. When I realize I don't know and my not knowing is threatening my flourishing, I need to find somebody who does know. And we go looking for an expert who can help us. What this verse is saying is that God receives love from us in this way, that we would say to him, God, I do not know what I'm doing, but I believe that you do. God, I do not trust myself, but I do trust you. Of course, the difference is when we go to the doctor, what we're saying to the doctor isn't that our whole life is in disarray. We're inviting her into one sliver of our life. Doctor, could you help me with this? When we call the plumber, we're not asking him to weigh in on our marriage. We're just saying, fix the toilet. We're inviting him into a sliver of authority. But God is saying, I want you to trust me so much that you would lay your entire life in front of me and say, anything you want to talk about, God, I'm here for it. I trust you with all that I am completely. Now, is that where you are with God? Now, I know if I ask, do you love God? You'll say, yes, uh, of course. I, I sing to him. I, I give money to him. I do this for him. But 
Is this where you are with God? Because God says all that other stuff is great. But here's what I really want. Will you love me enough to let me into your life? Will you love me enough to welcome my authority into your life? Will you love me enough to realize you don't know and to trust that I do? And to that we say, I don't know if I can. How could I ever get there? And for that, let's get to my third point, which is I need someone to prove it to me. The only way I could ever welcome the authority of God into every area of my life is if someone proved to me that doing so was smart, was good, was reliable. Well, I want you to understand something. This is what the entire Bible is about. One of the greatest realities of the Bible is that it is one story from start to finish of all that God is doing in our world. And all that he is doing is designed to convince you that his authority should be welcomed into your life. It's designed, the whole Bible is designed to convince you of two things. You cannot trust yourself and you can trust God. Let me show you. In the very beginning, God makes Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden. And he, and he tells them basically, if I can paraphrase, run around naked and build stuff. Which before I had kids sounded like a great weekend. And he only has one rule in the garden, one rule, that's it. He, he has this tree and he says, don't eat from the tree. Now, I don't know about you, but if I made a garden that was paradise and only had one rule and it was don't eat from the tree, and if you eat from it, you're gonna die, I would take that tree and I'd put it underwater or I'd put it in a cave or I'd make a dragon to stand in front of it. You know, I'd find a way to, to discourage people, but God doesn't do that. He takes the tree and he puts it right in the middle of the garden, why? Because what he's saying to Adam and Eve is every day you walk past that tree, you are telling me you love me. You love me enough to trust me. You love me enough to obey me. You're welcoming. Every time you walk past that tree, you are welcome, welcoming my authority into your life. When the snake shows up, what does he say? You can't trust God. You can't trust God. He's out to ruin you. He's not helping you. He's limiting you. Don't trust God. Trust yourself. And Adam and Eve get so excited about that idea, they eat from the tree. And from that moment through the rest of the story of the Bible, people repeat that over and over and over again. I cannot trust God. He does not want to help me. He only wants to hurt me. I have to trust myself. The entire Old Testament is the story of people individually and collectively saying, we cannot trust God, we must trust ourselves. That's not just the story of the Bible, that's the story we were born into. We were born people who say, I cannot trust God. He only wants to limit me. He only wants to ruin me. I have to trust myself. That is one of the main storylines of the Bible. But there's a second one. And the second one is that even though we struggle to trust God, God is committed to proving his trustworthiness. 
The entire Bible reads as God's resume to us. Here's how you know I can be trusted. I told Noah it was going to rain and he should build a boat. And he did. And I saved him. I told Abraham to start walking and I would make him into a great nation. And he did. And I kept my promise. I told Moses to go to Egypt and face down Pharaoh and I would rescue my people. And I did. I told Joshua to go into the promised land and they would defeat their enemies. And they did. I told David I would make him king. And I did. I told the prophets I would send a rescuer. And I did. The entire Old Testament is God putting his resume in front of us and saying, don't you see, I can be trusted. So that when we get to the gospels and Jesus shows up, it's this trustworthy God who has sent him. And what does the life and ministry of Jesus show us? These two things. We cannot trust ourselves and we can trust God. Jesus's life shows us that we are not trustworthy. It's like you, you think you're good looking until an actual good looking person walks in the room and you realize, oh, that's what good looking looks like. In the same way, Jesus shows up and we think we're righteous, we think we're wise, we think we're kind, we think we're patient. But when we see Jesus, we go, oh, that's what wisdom looks like. Oh, that's what patience looks like. Oh, that's what kindness looks like. Jesus transcends all the isms and all the bigotry. He, he's not angry, he's patient. He's not, he's not evil, he's kind. And yet, what do we do with him? We crucify him. And you see, Jesus comes as the climax of this great biblical truth. We should not trust ourselves. But he also comes as the climax to the second storyline. Because Jesus says to us, I will trust God. Watch what happens. The night he's arrested, he's praying in the garden and he's saying to the father, not what I want, dad, but what you want, which is another way of saying, I trust you. When his disciples reach for their swords and decide they will fight to the death to save them, he says, put your swords away. I don't trust in a sword. I trust my father. When he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, don't you understand? I decide if you live or die. Jesus says, you don't decide anything. My father decides and I trust him. When Jesus is nailed to a cross, his dying words are, daddy, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is another way of saying, even in my death, I trust you. And he dies. And in the death of Jesus, we see all of our fears of what would happen if we gave God authority. If we welcomed the authority of God into our lives, we see what we're afraid of, don't we? Because what we believe is that if we gave authority to God, if we welcomed his authority, that's what happens. He kills you. That's what everybody was saying when Jesus died. Look, this guy trusted God. How, how much good did it do him? He's dead. And that's what we fear. If I give God my dating life, I may never get married. 
If I give God my finances, I'll go bankrupt through generosity. If I give my God my house, he'll make me sell it. If I have God raise my kids, if, God, if I raise my kids God's way, they'll never be the athletes they could. They'll never be the students they could. They'll never achieve what they could. We're scared that if we give God authority, the snake was right. He will limit us. He may even kill us. But three days later, Jesus shows us that even if he does, praise God, he'll just raise us up. Don't you see, friends? Jesus is God's final argument to you that he can be trusted. You cannot be, but he can be. Don't you see when God says, this is how you love me, that you keep my commands and they're not burdensome. None of us could ever do that. But Jesus came and did that in our place. And he stands alongside of us and says to us, I know you're scared, but you can trust him. Friends, what are you afraid of? That area of your life, you don't want to give control to God in. That, that area of your life, you won't welcome his authority. That thing he's calling you to do that you don't want to do. Jesus comes, don't you see Jesus comes alongside you? And Jesus says, what are you worried about? And you say, I'm scared. I'm scared I'm not going to get what I want. I'm scared I'm not going to get the life I want. I'm scared he's going to ruin me. I'm scared he's going to kill me. And Jesus says to you, I understand. I understand. But I went first so that you might always know whatever God asks of you, it is always for your good. Don't you see, Jesus came because what God wants from you, he wants to win from you. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, I want you to obey me and I want you to be happy about it. No, 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 no. He comes in Jesus and lives in our place and dies in our place and raises from the dead and says to us, don't you see? You can trust me. So do you. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. I'm not talking about what label you've affixed to yourself or what answer you might check on a religious survey. I'm saying this is what it actually means to be a Christian, that you would say to God, because of Jesus, I have learned that you love me and I can trust you. Therefore, here's my life. I welcome your authority into it. Is that where you are? If you're here and you're a Christian and that is not where you are, I want you to see that your primary struggle right now is not disobedience, it's trust. When did you stop trusting God? Jesus has come so that you might trust that the one who wants authority into your life is for you, loves you, wants the best for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm asking you to discard all your preconceived notions about what it means to be a Christian, what you saw on TV, what you've seen in your family member, what your church experience is, and to be here in this moment and realize this is what God wants from you. He wants you to see that he loves you so much that he did not wait for you to muster up this kind of love. He provided Jesus to live 
and die in your place. And he rose him from the dead in order that you and I might see that all who trust God will ultimately not be disappointed. Only the God of the Bible not only requires obedience, but provides all that we need in order to give it joyfully. Let's pray. Father God, we're sorry. I'm sorry. We're sorry for imposing our own definition of love onto you, for making you in our image and deciding for ourselves how you want to be loved. God, we see now that you desire the glory and honor that you are due, the glory and honor of our welcoming your authority into our lives. And the truth is, you are owed that no matter what you ever do. You are owed that because of who you are. But we praise you that you were not content simply to be owed it, but you came to win it from us in Christ. And I pray that whether for the first time or again, we might fix our eyes on Jesus and press forward welcoming your authority in our lives because he has taught us that even if you kill us, you will just raise us from the dead. In his name we pray, amen.